Hi, this is David Leed of Leeds Culinaria with another episode of our Author's Answer Series. Today's guest is Stephen Shaw, the brains behind the popular website eGullet.org, as well as the author of the brand new book, Asian Dining Rules. Hi, Stephen. Hi, David. Thanks for joining us. Now tell me, why did you decide to write a book called Asian Dining Rules? Well, first and foremost, it was an excuse to eat a lot of Asian food <laughs> while getting paid to write a book, which is really the reason you write any book. A good right? enough reason. <laughs> but also, I had written a previous book called Turning the Tables, exactly, which is yes. a book about mainstream restaurants, Western restaurants, if you would. If you would. Um, and in that book, uh, there was a very small section, maybe four pages, called Guerrilla Sushi Tactics. Right. And it was about how to get the most out of a sushi bar dining experience. When I went on tour to promote the book and spoke to audiences, I found that that little four-page section of a 300-page book got like a disproportionate share of its questions and people coming up to me and asking what about Japanese food and then asking questions about other types of Asian food. And I realized there was a tremendous amount of uncertainty mm -hmm. out there in the general public about Asian dining. And I, at some point, I was smart enough to realize, oh, maybe I should write a book about that. Okay. And so that was what I did. And I think we should say up front that Asian dining rules is not some wrist-slapping, hand-slapping book of what not to do and what to do in a restaurant. It really is understanding these cultures, understanding the food as they are made and sold here in America and North America. Right. The The title, I think, we, we chose it because it's catchy, right. Asian dining rules, but it also has the double meaning, you know, Asian dining rules. It's great. Right. Um, and, and Interesting. And we okay. didn't want to you know, make people feel that this was going to be a book about etiquette, about how to hold your chopsticks so that Japanese chefs won't get angry at you. It's not about that. It's right. about a total approach to eating at these different types of restaurants, Chinese, Japanese, Southeast Asian, Korean, Indian restaurants here in North America. Not, you know, it's not a, not a travel book to going mm. over there. Right. But it's not so much about the etiquette as it is about how to get the most out of the dining experience at each type of place. Now, you've broken down the book according to the countries or the regions that you're talking about with Asian dining. Tell me specifically the five areas. Japanese, Chinese, Southeast Asian, which breaks down into Thai, Vietnamese, Cambodian, uh, Korean, and Indian. Okay, excellent. Now, what was one of the biggest surprises or biggest discoveries that you made while you were researching the book? Well, I think the biggest surprise was sort of the realization that a lot of the issues that people have with Asian dining turn out to be our fault, the consumer's fault. Like, for example, a lot of people have complained to me over the years that they've gone into a Chinese restaurant in a Chinatown somewhere and they've noticed a secret menu being given to the Chinese or the, the people with Asian faces right, that if you, have a, if you have a non-Asian face, you, you just don't get that. And what I learned over the course of talking to a lot of owners and eating a lot of places all, all around the country is that the reason that they do that isn't because they don't want to give you the food because they hate you because you're white. The reason is that Asian restaurateurs have learned over a period of 100 or more years that the average non-Asian customer just doesn't like the real stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're in the hospitality business. They don't want to serve you stuff that you're not going to like. And they can't sell. Right. And so they so they give you a menu that is, you know, a lowest common denominator menu. But 
in the back, they have some chef who, who knows, could have trained with some aristocrats over there and has this, the ability to create a wedding banquet on the spur of the moment. And so the big trick is that you need to make clear to the servers, the owners, the managers, that you want the real stuff, that you want that menu that's not in English, that you're willing to stand there and say, what's this dish? Tell me what this dish is. Tell you know, Every single one, go down the list. And when they say, oh, you won't like it, to say, tell me anyway, mm -hmm. because I'm really interested in this mm -hmm. and I want the real stuff. And once you make that connection, they will welcome you in into the fold, no matter what the color of your skin is. Right. I, I found that in Portugal. When you get beyond some of the tourist menus, if you will, and start asking for the things that you have in these very small restaurants, the tripe and the offal, they're thrilled to share that with you. They just don't think you want that. So therefore, it's always salt cod, it's always potatoes, or in more classier or, or, or more creative restaurants, it's something different. But I think you raised a really good point here in the book saying that they will be ecstatic to share some of their food and their culture with you if they're given the opportunity. Absolutely. Food is a, an international, a global language that everybody speaks, but you have to indicate a willingness to have a dialogue in that language. Otherwise, you're just going to move through the, the tourist mechanism, as you say. And in any Asian restaurant, there are two groups of people. There's the people dining there and the tourists. Right. And you want to be one of the people dining there, not one of the tourists. Yeah. And I think it does take some education. I think the book is perfect because there are things that I don't know what they are. Uh, I'm scared to ask for certain things in Asian restaurants. Um, of course, there's all these, these myths about what they are and how they get the food, which of course are myths. But I don't want to make a fool of myself. So I always go, go toward something that I've had a million times, something that is so Americanized. It's not even Chinese or, or Japanese or, or Korean anymore. And I think the book does a deep dive. But I think what's interesting is you did, did a deep dive in three levels for the beginner, intermediate, and more the advanced diner. Talk a little bit about how you broke that up. Well, one of the problems that I was having in conceptualizing the book, I mean, you're talking about five huge cuisines, mm -hmm. each one of which could have been a, its own very book big itself. book. And this book is a little book. It's small enough that you could carry it with you in your purse to a restaurant. Right. And so how was I going to fit all that in the book? And also, how was I going to make the book appealing to people with different levels of experience and exposure to these cuisines? I didn't want to make it a book for, you know, only for people who've never eaten Japanese food, mm -hmm. because then anybody who's ever had Japanese food is going to say, well, this book isn't for me. Right. And I didn't want to make it a super advanced book for only for people who are interested in hardcore insider sushi stuff, because again, then the beginner would be intimidated by that. So in each chapter, what I did was I broke it up into beginner, intermediate, and advanced information. The beginner for the person who maybe has only ever had California rolls, but wants to learn more about sushi. Mm -hmm. The intermediate for people who want to take their experience up to the next level and develop a relationship with a sushi chef and really get the most out of that experience. And the advanced is the hardcore foodie stuff that even the people who think they know everything, they don't know it because I got it from, you know, the best sushi chefs in the country. And I talked to people who own sushi restaurants and I talked to experts in Japan. And this is like the real high level stuff that they told me their most advanced customers don't know yet. And so that's, you know, so that's that's also in the book, like the subcategories of Toro, like an advanced eater of, of tuna at sushi places knows that there's Toro and regular tuna, mm -hmm. but perhaps doesn't know that Toro is 
broken down into Otoro and Chutoro and doesn't know that the Otoro is further broken down into the Dandara and the Shimifuri, depending on the direction the streaks of fat are running, whether they're streaks or whether they're like little snowflakes of fat. So that kind of stuff is also in there, but it starts with a pitch to the beginner and then sort of brings people along. See, what I like about that approach as a writer is it's a very smart way of dealing with this kind of a topic because it's a book that grows with you or a book you grow with it both ways. As you learn more about the culture and more about the food, you can rely and turn to the book for more in-depth information as you start learning more. So it's not just a static book. I think it's a book that continues to grow and offer more information as you grow as a diner. Right. I tried to make it a book that, first and foremost, people would be able to read from cover to cover and enjoy, yes. like a work of narrative nonfiction. But at the same time, that after you've read through it and maybe some of the stuff you've kind of put in the back on the back burner because it's not something you're ready to try or you don't live in a city with a Cambodian restaurant, I'm also hoping that when you do go to a place like Lowell, Massachusetts, with a large concentration of Cambodian restaurants, that you'll bring the book with you. And when you go to the restaurant, you can open it up to the Cambodian page and it'll give you you know five dishes that you can know to order and you can put together a good meal even having never been in a Cambodian restaurant, restaurant before. before which I, which makes a lot of sense I think it's terrific now you have here on page 12 um, the 10 tips for getting the most out of every Asian restaurant meal and I just want to go over them because uh, I think they're really important one is become a regular which I think makes a lot of sense uh, I think most of us honestly aren't regulars anymore at places you are, I mean, you're probably regular in most places. I'm not really a regular anymore. Right. Well, I think that the thing to remember is that the best restaurant is not the restaurant that has the highest rating in the Zagat Guide or that has a four-star review from the New York Times. The best restaurant is the restaurant where they take care of you. Mm -hmm. the customer. It's the place where you're a regular. And that can be the Greek diner on your corner. If that happens to be the place you get treated like royalty, you're going to have a better experience there than you're going to have at a much objectively much better restaurant where they don't know you from, from anybody. And one of the things that I try to get across in the book is, yeah, it's great to be a regular, but also that you can do what I call, you, you can become a regular on your first visit. Mm -hmm. If you are very conscientious about really making a connection, starting a conversation, you can get the regular treatment on your first, first visit. visit. Good point. Point three says, go at slow times. Right. That's also an essential ingredient. I mean, say you want to become a regular on your first visit. I would not suggest going Friday night at eight o'clock because how are you going to have a conversation when the all the servers are running around struggling to keep up and the managers are dealing with the, all people who are already VIP customers. So I recommend when you're trying to get your foot in the door at a place, go on Monday or Tuesday, go at you know, five thirty, six o'clock, mm -hmm. when it's quiet, when it's dead, when they really appreciate your business, when the guy in the suit standing up front who speaks the best English isn't doing anything. So you can say, hey, come over here and help me order. And then you say at one point, I, I think I read that the people up front are the ones you really should get in, in conversation with to understand what's going on. Well, depending on the way the restaurant is staffed, okay. especially in a in a Chinatown or a Koreatown, very often the servers themselves will be will not have great English and are just trying to keep up. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's usually going to be a manager or two up front, the guy in the suit, who has better English, maybe went to college here, and can be the person that you can make your Rosetta Stone mm -hmm. for that cuisine. Mm -hmm. And if you can get that person's attention and get that person to adopt your table, then he or she 
will will say, oh, we have this, we have the green bass today, and mm-hmm. you should try that or or whatever. That's the person who has the the power. And then you say here also, just because it's popular or a bargain doesn't mean it's good. Right. I think that there are a lot of people who say, well, I drive down a highway strip and I see the place with the full parking lot and that's where I go. Mm -hmm. But you've got to remember that the place with the full parking lot is often TGI Fridays or Applebee's or McDonald's. I mean, if if popular meant good, then McDonald's would be the best restaurant in America. And it isn't. Very often, the best place to go is the place that's off the highway strip, that's in some unremarkable cluster of buildings with no exterior signs of of being good. And And you go in and it turns out to be a family run solo establishment where they're doing real stuff from back in the old country and the only people eating there are the people who really care about food. If you really care about food, you're in a minority in this world. So you want to find the other people like that. And that may not be in the place with the full parking lot. And then you say here also fine tune your restaurant radar, which is what you're talking about in a certain sense. Right. I think that a lot of that has to do with eliminating the false positives and false negatives. Like People see a restaurant and they think the exterior is unremarkable, so they don't want to go in, whereas, you know, Cheesecake Factory has a beautiful, inviting exterior. It's well lit, whatever. But very often, I mean, you see this if you go over to Asia as well. Like, they don't care about the exteriors of their restaurants. So They care about the food. Right. They care about the food and maybe secondarily the interior and the exterior is like the very last thing that anybody cares about. So do not be – afraid of a restaurant that's in some totally unremarkable white cinder block strip mall, it could still be the best restaurant of that kind that you've eaten at. And there are many, many examples that I've seen, like Lotus of Siam in Las Vegas, Mm -hmm. like uh, Sunluck Garden in Cleveland. I mean, these are places where it's like next to a Kentucky Fried Chicken in a crummy shopping center, and you cannot believe that it's going to be good from the outside. You can't. When you walk in, you can't believe it's going to be good. You can't believe it's going to be good until you taste the food, and then you realize you found the best place in that category. And are these restaurants filled? Not necessarily. They they may be filled on their Friday and Saturday nights, but the reason they put them in these places is because. Maybe they don't do a lot of lunch business. Maybe they don't don't do a lot of early weeknight business. So they want to be in places that have cheap rent Mm -hmm. where they can function on mostly the Friday, Saturday night business. And then the rest of the week, they're just kind of hanging out. That's also – like I said, that's a great time to go because they're just hanging out waiting for customers. And you can be one of those customers. Now, what interests me uh, because I think I've made a lot of them is what are some of the biggest gaffes of the non-indoctrinated diner? Well, again, as we, as we said before, you don't have to be too afraid of gaffes right. because nobody expects very much of you. <laughs> <laughs> Expectations right. are low when you what, walk Whatever in. you do, somebody else has done worse. So so you shouldn't be all afraid. But I think that a couple of them one, – one thing I see a lot in Japanese places that serve sushi Which is people done. making this mixture mm-hmm. of wasabi and soy sauce and then maybe putting a piece of the ginger right on top of their sushi to make a little sandwich and then like – just drenching the rice part of the sushi in that mixture of soy sauce and wasabi and eating something that ultimately doesn't taste like anything. That's the the etiquette equivalent in Japan of somebody putting food on your on the table in America and you're just covering it with salt and ketchup without ever tasting it. Okay. So it's it's an insult to the chef, to the to the restaurant. The, you know, taste the sushi with only the slightest bit of soy sauce. 
and dip the fish part of it, you know, turn on its side, dip the fish part, not the rice part, because rice really absorbs a ton of it. Taste it. There's already some wasabi that's been applied under the fish by the finger of the sushi chef. Mm -hmm. He has already decided that's the right amount. So you shouldn't have to add more. If you're a huge wasabi lover, add a little more, but add it directly to the piece. Eat it like it's something to be appreciated, not like you know, something that somebody actually sat there and made for you, not like some junk that you're just going to dip in this paste. Okay. What else? What are some of the other things that I'm sure I've done that are considered gaffes? Well, in most Asian cultures, food in general is revered and chopsticks as the mechanism by which food is eaten in most Mm -hmm. places except Thailand, except India. Chopsticks are kind of revered. You don't mess with the chopsticks. So you don't play the drums on the table with the chopsticks. You don't stick them up your nose to make tusks. You don't stab them into the rice bowl and just kind of leave them standing up there. All of those things are considered improper. Some of them are considered very bad luck. So what you really want to do is like treat the chopsticks the way you would treat, you know, a knife mm-hmm. in a in a regular restaurant. You you put them rest them against the plate, you, you treat them nicely. You don't just wave them around. You wouldn't wave a knife around and stick it up your nose. So don't do Some that. Some people might. Yeah. <laughs> Don't do that with the chopsticks either. But I think you raise a good point that there's a cultural divide here that we may not know some of the cultures, some of the cultural aspects or some of the uh, superstitions that evolve around food and revolve around food. So that's a very interesting point. Uh, Also, you mentioned, too, that any kind of imperious or obnoxious behaviors to be avoided. I mean, that's in any restaurant, obviously. But is there a particular cultural element to that of just being too raucous or being a little too loud? Because I see that in a lot of the restaurants in my neighborhood on Friday nights. Well, I think especially in Japanese places, you have to be careful of that. Like Chinese restaurants tend to be raucous by nature and they cater to big family groups, kids running around. In fact, that's the best way to eat at them with with eight or 12 people. Mm -hmm. Japanese restaurants tend to be more serene and they really respect the dining experience. And so getting loud, making a lot of demands, treating them like servants, like that's not – that's not the way to go. They, the Japanese restaurant owners really consider it kind of an extension of the home and you're a guest there, a paying guest, so mm-hmm. you have certain expectations. But for the most part, you, you, you want to treat it with a certain amount of, of politeness and quietness and ser- serenity. A lot of our listeners and readers on Leeds Culinaria are writers or want to be writers. And this is your second book and you write extraordinarily well with a tremendous amount of humor and uh, humanity to your writing. What was the writing process like for you? What was the hardest thing? What was more the easiest thing for you? What what were some of the greatest challenges in writing the book? Well, the hardest part is always writing the proposal. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> Selling the proposal, get you getting somebody get working with with an editor and then getting started on the writing. There's just a huge amount of procrastination. Uh, but once I got like when I when I was looking at the blank computer screen and like typing, you know, Asian dining rules, like and I was about to start, I thought, how am I going to write this book? It's 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 too big a job. Plus, I don't know enough to to do it. I don't trust myself. I'm a fraud. I'm going to be telling people all this stuff, and I, here I am, this like you know, I'm a Jewish guy in New York telling people how to eat Asian food. I, I'm a fraud. And then I. A story came to mind about a restaurant where we used to go when I was a kid, and I kind of wrote it up as a story. And I realized I had all these other stories to tell about my life eating Asian food in New York and around the country. Mm-hmm. 
And I just started writing the stories and then I realized, oh, well, I don't really have a book out of this. But what I did was I kind of kept the stories as little essays that punctuate the text and set off in gray boxes. I tell a lot of little stories or talk about issues. And that's kind of interwoven with the brass tax information. Once I had that that foundation, that backbone of the stories, I knew that like I was I was actually offering something. And then filling in the rest was easy because I just I was just able to ask people who knew more than I did right. and get that information from them. In the process I educated myself. So the hardest part for you was finding the structure of dividing the book. Right. Finding finding the structure and coming up with a way to do a book that I thought, like, I wouldn't feel bad if somebody paid $15 for it. Yeah. There is that sort of onus on the writer to make sure that you're offering something of value when you know that someone's paying to read your writing. Right. And I love it when I get an email from somebody who says, I had a great meal. It was totally worth the price of the book because then I feel good. Well, that's great. Well, Steve, thank you very much for joining us. I wish you great luck with Asian Dining Rules, and hopefully we'll see you again when you write your third book. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Stephen Shaw, author of Asian Dining Rules, Essential Strategies for Eating Out at Japanese, Chinese, Southeast Asian, Korean, and Indian Restaurants. I'm David Leet for Leet's Culinaria. Thank you for listening, and remember, keep cooking, and come back soon for another episode of our Author's Answer series that always keeps you hungry for more. <laughs>